Today on Against the Grain, there have been numerous exposés of the conditions in factory farms where livestock are crammed together by the hundreds of thousands. But anthropologist Alex Blanchett argues that animal agribusiness, rather than being a sordid exceptional case, has represented the cutting edge of capitalist industry for more than 100 years. He discusses the exploitation of both animals and humans at a massive pork complex in the Midwest, where 7 million hogs are raised and slaughtered each year. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. In the Jungle, which was published in 1906, socialist journalist Upton Sinclair wrote about the exploitation of immigrant workers in the meat industry. A century later, the meat industry still depends on the intensified labor of immigrant workers toiling to extract every bit of possible profit from the bodies of animals. While animal welfare and human labor are often analyzed separately, Alex Blanchette considers the connection between the two. Blanchette, who's Associate Professor of Anthropology at Tufts University, worked for two years in a pork-producing complex and examines the production process in his book, Porkopolis, American Animality, Standardized Life and the Factory Farm, which is published by Duke University Press. Alex, you write about a Midwestern town that you call Dixon, where every day 20,000 pigs are slaughtered. Can you describe the place for us and tell us why you chose to write about it without giving the names of the companies involved or the town itself? In many ways, the place I call Dixon, which is um, a, a place in the rural Midwest and Great Plains that annually produces about 7 million hogs in a year. In many ways, it looks no different than any other rural town, um, except if you um, drove on the outskirts, you might see a huge concrete box that is the slaughterhouse and might wonder what it is, um, despite the fact that it you know, is a site for the generation, mass production of life and death. Um, you rarely ever see hogs in public. Um, now, of course, that's if you don't work in these operations. But this is a town, Dixon, with about twelve to 15,000 people, um, whereby four to 5,000 are employed in the hog industry. So almost everyone is connected to these workplaces, or at least the paychecks from these workplaces in some ways. And in, in many senses, the town, even though you wouldn't know it just to drive through there, is a company town built in and through um, industrial hogs. Um, I opt not to use the the town's name um, or the, the the various corporations' names that are involved in the study for a few reasons. Um, one was um, promises to various companies that gave me workplace access. These places can be a little bit um, cautious with their transparency, and um, as part of the condition to work as an artificial inseminator or a pig delivery person in these in these barns. Um, some companies did not want their names said publicly. On the other hand, I'm trying not to write an expose in this book. This book is not about um, one single company and the sort of nefarious things that they do differently. Um, in many ways, although all different companies and regions for industrial animal production have their quirks and differences, um, in many ways, this company and this town is not very different from the other um, areas uh, throughout the South and the Midwest and the Great Plains that have been taken over by industrial animal production. And um, to that effect, I didn't wanna make this about one company, um, but instead an industry. And my book is really focused on the broader structures and capitalist pressures um, that, that make pork production what it is today, rather than um, the behind the scenes actions or quirks of a single company. Sure. Well, I wonder, and this is a very tall order, and really we'll be exploring this through the hour, but I wonder if you could take us through the life and death of an industrial pig at a place like Dixon. How does that whole cycle start? 
Yeah. So one of the things that makes Dixon different and one of the things that attracted me to it, although, you know, this was in 2010 when I first started doing ethnographic research or, 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 or living in these places and working in these places. Um, one of the things that made them different at that time, although today it's increasingly common, is that these companies were amongst the most vertically integrated in the world. And what does that mean? Um, it's really a fancy way of saying that they own and control every single phase of the pig's life and death course. So as odd as it might sound, um, in some ways, the raising of pigs and the slaughter of pigs and the post-kill processing of their bodies into hundreds of different products, um, including but going on beyond meat, um, is in, are set, really have evolved as separate industries throughout much of the 20th century. In the 1980s and 1990s, we saw a new merge, merge towards integration and, and corporations trying to um, kind of control and monopolize all value within these animals. And so this particular company that I study um, using a pseudonym Dover Foods is one of a number of companies that really now directly um, own every single phase in the animal's life and death course. So, you know, pig, it's a very complicated process for breeding um, and trying to generate um, the animals that these companies want, which is incredibly uniform animals that um, have very little bodily variation and be, can be killed very rapidly on a slaughterhouse that um, processes 20,000 hogs a day. And so there's a complex um, genetics process that involves first um, making the boars that will make boar breeding boars and making the sows that will make commercial sows that then make piglets. So there's a kind of vast circulation of, of boar semen or what the industry would call genetics through these various genetic nucleus barns where they really create the breeding animals that will then generate um, what we could call meat pigs or the, the pigs that uh, show up the, as, as pork chops, frankly, in, in the grocery store. Um, but the first, many people would say the first phase is the boar stud, whereby um, that semen is then batched and shipped to artificial insemination barns where I worked. Um, um, sows will be impregnated, they will gestate for three months, they will then be transferred to um, farrowing barns where they will be given give birth to increasingly large litters. Um, those litters will be weaned at day 20 um, to a nursery barn. And after um, a month or two of growing in a nursery barn, the pigs will be shipped to finisher or grow out barns where they will reach 285 pounds um, in about six months. Um, and then 20,000 of them per day will be um, shipped to a slaughterhouse. Um, they'll be processed at a rate of about one every three seconds and their carcasses um, broken down more finely and more finely every single year. Um, the meat is shipped around the world to as many as 30 different countries. That's about over 2 million pounds of meat per day. But then of course, pigs aren't just muscle and fat and their organs, bones, skins, blood, um, are all processed into different commodities. And indeed, when at the time when I was doing my research, the company was using a range of 1,100 different product codes to mark different substances that were being extracted from pigs' bodies. Many of those product codes were just different cuts of meat, um, and sometimes quite superficially so, perhaps just a different cut of meat for a different global wholesaler. Um, but on the other hand, um, many products, perhaps hundreds of products, um, had nothing to do with meat at all. They might include front leg bones for um, Japanese ramen soup base. Um, they might include lungs for pet food flavorings, or they may include um, taking all of the fat from pigs and um, processing, it's processing it into biodiesel um, for blending with commercial diesel. Would it be fair to say then that there is an intense focus in this whole process of producing and slaughtering these pigs to have a level of waste which is absolutely minimal and sort of a maximal attempt to get as much profit out of each pig's body as possible. Yes, I, I would say that this is a very old story, 
actually the Chicago meat packers of the 1880s, 1890s, um, 1900s that were kind of immortalized in Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. They were famous for saying that we use everything but the squeal. Indeed, since the founding moments of industrial concentration of animal slaughter, one could argue that the model has often been to break even on meat to try to produce meat that is cheaper and cheaper than all of your competitors. And in turn, these corporations try to make their profit margins by realizing value in all of the non-meat substances. Um, obviously, that's a, that's a question that varies um, with time, with feed costs, and a whole lot of other factors and inputs. But since at least the 1890s, um, this has been an industry that is built around using every single piece of the animal. Now. On the one hand, sometimes products have changed over the years, right? I mean, in the 1890s, pigs were as valuable for their fat for candles or lard as they were for their meat. Um, that's no longer the case today. Um, you know, many drugs that were formerly derived from pigs are, are now have synthetic substitutes. But on the other hand, the basic story that these pork corporations or really any animal meatpacking corporation is just constantly producing more substance, more meat, than can be domestically consumed. And they're constantly trying to find new sources of value, new sources of profit within, within the animal body. And this is, in many ways, a, a process that continues to this day. They, they try to use um, absolutely everything, including now um, we're seeing a real push to try to develop um, profit out of pig feces, um, say through um, methane-based biogas. And in some senses, we could look at this as a radically efficient process. We could say it's true that within the production process itself, there is very little waste. Um, that is, if we don't count um, the trace amounts of, of grease escaping, if we don't count all of the manure that is oftentimes um, you know, running off and um, devastating um, water, and if we don't count all of the antibiotic resistance genes that are generated from this process, <laughs> big things not to count, um, but we could say that there's very little waste here. Um, on the other hand, in the book, I try to argue that we, we can't just stop there, and we can't just say um, this is a perfectly efficient process that uses no waste, um, and, and that's the be-all and end-all. In some senses, that's been true for a hundred years. And what we're actually seeing is just unending efforts to find more and more um, sources of profit within these animals that have, have nothing to do with being efficient or to, of wise use of so-called resources. Um, it's really about just trying to increase capital. And though there might be no waste of pig parts, um, I think we should be thinking about the waste of social resources, of energy, of funding, of knowledge that are all being dedicated um, just to create this or that new in invention, like you know, turning fat into biodiesel, um, all in order to just to squeeze out some more pennies out of pigs. Indeed. And we'll return to the question of the sort of capitalist logic behind animal agribusiness. But I wanted to ask you, you've given us a sense of the scale of the pigs in these factory farming settings. I wonder, though, if you could tell us about the ratio of humans to pigs at a place like the one that you call Dixon. Yeah, in the, in the area that I call Dixon, there's a, um, a ratio that's, that's about 50 to 1, 50 pigs for every person. Um, in many ways, as I noted before, this, this is a company town built on pigs, and it really is an area that is organized around um, industrial animal life, by which, by which I mean it's, it's organized around um, continually trying to um, grow the scale and uniformity of this system. And then what about in the, the actual pig barns themselves? How much labor is required, human labor, to produce the kind of output of 20,000 pigs uh, slaughtered every day? There's roughly 4,000 people that work in a company of this side that's more or less evenly divided between 2,000 people working in the slaughterhouse and 2,000 people working in the live production barns in different phases and also grounds maintenance and different kind of infrastructural tasks. And tell us about 
about these people. What different roles do the workers play? Because one of the, the central arguments that you're making in Porkopolis, and I should say I'm speaking with Alex Blanchett, who is the author of Porkopolis, American Animality, Standardized Life in the Factory Farm, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Um, but one of the arguments that you're making in the book is that the labor of the animals and the humans, that is, the non-human animals and the humans, are very much bound up together. But of course, those humans are not just one undifferentiated group. So who works in a place like the one that you describe, and what different roles do the people play? There's people working in these operations from all over the world. There's about 26 different languages spoken in the elementary school. Um, Dixon is very much a migrant community um, involving you know, um, groups of um, indigenous migrants, say from Guatemala, but also refugees from South Sudan or um, Myanmar. Um, but also not just entry-level workers are migrants, but also most managers who work there are migrants, oftentimes white migrants from other parts of the United States. Um, I would say that there's a real class division in these operations um, and a, a, a racial and class division. Um, but I like to make a distinction in the book between the kinds of pigs that people in different classes encounter. So managers largely don't work with flesh and blood animals. They kind of work with animals as statistics, as numbers. They do touring of barns. They do sampling. Um, they really focus a lot of their energy into all of the different things that goes into animals, all of the different drugs, feed, um, building arrangements, um, all the different inputs that really make up industrial pigs in their flesh. Um, what I would call animality is what man managers are working on. Whereas workers are um, specialized into working with one um, type of hog or really one phase of animal life. Workers themselves work with flesh and blood animals, but oftentimes very um, um, select and specific parts of animal life. So we have a division of labor here whereby workers come to be specialized in one aspect of pig production. If someone is in the slaughterhouse, they're going to be making one cut um, up to 10,000 times a day in one part of the pig's bodies. Um, in some senses, this is how I think this industry has evolved, especially over the last 20 years, which is a more and more fine-grained division of labor and specialization. And in some senses, I think that this is needed by the system itself. What these companies are trying to do is produce um, the most uniform pigs to ever exist. There's a, a wide variety of reasons of why they're, they're doing so, but the, the gist is their profit model is set up in creating hogs that are more uniform than all of their competitors. But the trick I found is that to actually accomplish this requires a great deal of specialized labor. It requires people to you know, specialize, say, in taking care of um, small pigs or runted pigs aged one day to 20 days, um, or people who just accrue by virtue of repetition um, incredible knowledge really about um, pigs' reproductive instincts during breeding. Um, one of the arguments I, I make in the book um, is that paradoxically, this system, which from the outside looks like it's about just making um, animals into widgets, right? Um, paradoxically, it's actually come to require a lot of knowledge um, on the part of workers and actually a lot of care on the part of workers. Um, these highly uniform pigs are very fragile, they're very weak, and um, arguably that very weakness and vulnerability requires workers to, you know, become very invested in, in understanding pig disease, in understanding um, pig bodily injury, and finding ways to um, heal them in order to keep the system going. In many ways, I think that, that these operations do run on the knowledge and not just, say, the manual labor of, of work. Right. So you have this paradox that on the one hand, you've got these mind-boggling numbers of pigs being raised and slaughtered with a constant push to standardize their shape and size. And you're saying, on the other hand, the labor that's required for these processes in some ways, I don't know if you would say resist standardization, but requires a kind of specialization 
and even intimacy with the pigs. And I wanted to ask you about that, about the the many human-pig interactions that are central to the production of meat, including this idea that there's almost a intimate relationships that form um, to some degree between the humans and the pigs. You know, when I moved to this this town in the in 2010, these operations had been going for about 20 years at that point, right? And I really expected them to be very worked out um, to have for, for managers to really have this this system um, sorted out and it'd be sort of running on clockwork. And one of the things that just struck me as I, I started working these operations and spending quite a bit of time with managers is how they are kind of always running crisis to crisis. You know, they'd integrated all the pigs. They'd produced one of the largest scale industrial um, animal agribusinesses going. Um, but whether it was new forms of disease emerging, whether it was um, new problems that emerge precisely because they're trying to create such uniform animals, such homogenous animals, um, in a fairly confined 100-mile radius region at a massive scale, um, they were just constantly running from um, outbreak to crisis to issue and so on. And one of the things that I just found striking in shadowing these managers over eight months was they were oftentimes less focused on what I expected them to be to be looking at. I expected them to be constantly looking at things like pig genetics, pig feed, building structures, um, the environmental conditions in which animals grow. In other words, just really being focused on how they can you know, wring more growth or faster growth out of these hogs. But in practice, what I, I actually encountered was that managers were always trying to intervene into human life in order to make these animals more productive. In some ways, they seemed to almost think that they had worked out all of the kinks within the barns and they increasingly had to remake um, taken for granted forms of human life and sociality in order to make it more amenable to industrial pig growth. So an example of this, um, which I actually learned quite late in my research, um, was that the company had become worried with all of these pigs in the area that um, diseases and animal diseases could be transferring across workers' bodies um, when they're socializing at home or outside of the workplace and potentially um, you know, circulating into untainted barns of swine and leading to um, unmanageable disease. And so the company decided in the wake of this that they would have to start monitoring um, workers' payroll forms and ensuring that someone who works, say, in a boar stud doesn't live um, with someone who works in an artificial insemination barn or a growing barn or a slaughterhouse. Um, they're essentially trying to um, make sure that humans' family life and sociality match the division of labor and the, the divisions of pigs within these operations. In other words, um, to try to man manage disease in this relatively small area, they had to start remaking taken for granted um, aspects of, you know, who socializes with who, who lives with whom, um, you know, how, how, how people conduct their lives outside of work. And how did they manage to control those things, presumably, at least in theory, outside of their realm? Yeah, well, one way was just to insist that, you know, if, say, a family, a multi-generational family was all living together and working in different processes, that different parts of these operations, then um, they would either need to all work in the same part if they were in that corporation, or else they'd have to, they'd have to quit. Um, or some people would have to quit and they'd have to find um, employment elsewhere, um, ideally in their mind outside of the pork industry. On the other hand, you know, there was a lot of signs that managers were becoming increasingly concerned about things that really were hard for them to control, that at some level they cannot directly control, like how people interact with that church, how people interact at bars and so forth. And they were admittedly, when I was there, not at the phase of even attempting to um, um, corral workers' behavior and sociality at that level. But the um, interesting thing was that managers to some extent were doing this themselves. They were refusing, like say a live production manager, a barn manager was refusing to socialize oftentimes with um, a manager who works in a slaughterhouse. They were kind of modeling in their behavior um, a different kind or a future step of biosecurity whereby um, 
you know, as impossible as this is to fully control, um, at some level, every aspect of town sociality would um, mimic and relate to um, the organization of pigs. Alex Blanchett is my guest. He's an anthropologist, and we'll return with him after this music break. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. My guest today is Alex Blanchett. He is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Tufts University and the author of the book, which is out from Duke University Press, titled Porcopolis, American Animality, Standardized Life, and the Factory Farm. He's also co-editor of How Nature Works, Rethinking Labor on a Troubled Planet. Well, listening to your descriptions of uh, life for the pigs and the workers, life and death for the pigs in this factory farm somewhere in the Midwest. Um, many listeners, I think, would immediately conclude that this is a shining example of our exploitation as humans of the non-human animal world. Why do you think that's too simple? I do think that's too simple. I, I think that diagnosing the emergence and growth of these operations in the United States as being linked to say um, what, what people call anthropocentrism or just caring about human desires such as human desire for meat um, is obviously part of the story, right? Um, obviously, it, it, this, these places do um, tell us quite a bit about um, how society is kind of paradoxically deeply, deeply invested in animal life, you know, so much science and resources dedicated to maximizing animal feed and growth, but at the same time, we'll kind of kill them and cut them apart without a second thought. I ultimately think that's too simple because it doesn't take into account how so many of these um, outcomes, these, these massive factory farms of 7 million animals being produced in a year are really tied up with the evolution of industrial capitalism. You know, one of the things that, that my book tries to do is not treat factory farms as exceptional, right? I think there's a there's a, a pattern we see in a lot of writing about them. Really, no one thinks they're a good thing or very few people think they're a good thing. And people oftentimes sort of say, you know, the factory farm is one of the truly horrible things and we have to focus our energy on that and reform that. But I see... Um, I don't see factory farms as you know, radically new or as a break with um, capitalism as we know it. I think what makes these sites a little bit unique is not that they're some sort of brave new world since the 1990s or something of, of engineering and mass producing life and death, not a brave new world of an intervention into nature. I think what makes them unique is that they're actually 150 years old. Um, in many ways, industrial animal slaughter in the United States predates uh, industrialism as we know it. Um, Henry Ford is said to have taken the idea for the automobile um, assembly line from the Chicago and Cincinnati meatpackers disassembly line. Me I, I could go through a long list of different industrial technologies that first showed up in meatpacking and then um, were kind of um, spread to, to other um, sites of industrial capitalism. What I think makes these sites unique is not just or primarily that they deal with animal life or they deal with nature, it's that they're just really um, highly developed and refined and kind of compounded in their engineering 
over 150 years. In some senses, um, worker, a worker in the slaughterhouse that's having to make um, 10,000 motions in a nine-hour shift um, is the product of like you know, 100 years of time motion studies of capitalism just getting more and more and more efficient in its exploitation of labor. And on that note, I think the other thing I try to argue in the book is that we have to pay attention to the ways that, you know, factory farms don't emerge just because people are sadists or something like that. Um, I see them as reflections of capitalist desire to, um, or need, structural need to exploit labor. Um, I earlier talked about how these operations that, as I encountered them, were really set up around trying to produce the most standardized and uniform animal possible. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, partially more uniformity allows these companies to get higher prices from global wholesalers. But a major reason is that pig uniformity and creating like a radically identical hog body allows them to operate at the scale of killing 20,000 pigs in a single shift in a slaughterhouse. It make, means that people have to make less adjustments on the fly. In theory, it means you can build more machines and automation processes around it. And in practice, um, really what it means is the line gets faster and faster as pigs' bodies get more uniform and workers are exploited ever more intensely um, to the point that today there are just so many reports of workers having to wear diapers on the disassembly line, of repetitive motion injuries just being rife throughout the industry. Um, and in, in one case in Missouri of, of workers in the wake of COVID-19 um, trying to sue a company because they didn't even have time to cough on the line. Um, that effort to try to just extract and exploit as much labor from human beings as, as, as they can in, in, in as quick amount of time as possible, I think has been a major, perhaps even disproportionate factor in concretely shaping pigs' bodies. Um, so much of the process of factory farms, um, ranging from the use of drugs like antibiotics um, into various genetic programs are all about trying to create this incredibly homogenous pig body that in turn operates almost like a technology on the disassembly line for exploiting workers. And so I really think we need to um, look at factory farms, not just as sites of cruelty, but also as sites of what capitalism, industrial capitalism might look like um, across a variety of industries as it becomes more and more and more efficient. Yes, that's what I was just about to ask you, which is that given that industrial animal agriculture has a very, very long history, you know, going back to Chicago and Cincinnati, and in many ways it seems that it has been a pioneering force in shaping processes of capitalist production. And I wanted to ask you then if you see industrial animal agribusiness as in many ways providing a template for other industries in the present. I do. Um, I, I absolutely do see them um, providing a template. And um, actually, just in the last couple of weeks, I was um, struck by some statements by Jeff Bezos and Amazon that just gave me um, utter pause. So I'll have to back up for a minute um, and, and, and tell a bit of a story. So the company that I studied is constantly trying to find new avenues for increasing profits out of pigs, right? Whether that's taking all the fat and turning it into biodiesel or, you know, taking the front leg bones and turning it into ramen soup base. During the time that I was um, in the town, I expected them to maybe develop um, some sort of process for you know, maybe processing all of the blood into plasma, uh, all the pig blood into plasma, or developing some new process through an organ. But what I actually found they were developing was a worker health clinic. And this really, you know, struck me as odd. Um, I don't think that this is company is evil, but they're operating in very tight margins, uh, profit margins. And generally speaking, they don't put in um, new initiatives that do not increase in some way their bottom line and profit margins. And it turns out that indeed this worker health clinic was um, about managing um, corporate 
profits. Um, partly it was about trying to maintain a stable workforce um, and trying to tend to worker injuries, which are um, perhaps to some degree inevitable when people are working with sharp knives all day, cutting up animals into increasingly fine parts. But what I actually found in, in talking to managers is that yes, this health clinic was designed to treat workers' injuries and perhaps from the corporation's perspective, also decrease the severity of a worker's compensation claim. But what its real purpose was, was to actually conduct a series of physicals when workers are first hired. Now, you know, when I was hired to work in a pig barn, I did a kind of not very invasive set of physicals like x-rays and so forth, just to make sure that my knees were okay and so forth. But this clinic was about having workers over the, the course of a, a longer time period, progressively lift different series of weights, test different motions, so the company could appraise um, the strongest part of any given worker's bodies and ideally slot them into um, the part of the disassembly line, um, the motion in the disassembly line that would have the least chance of causing um, acute injury, um, which, you know, from the company's perspective and manager's perspective was obviously a good thing. It does decrease um, the, the rate at which in workers are injured. And in a broader context of meatpacking, such as the poultry industry in the U.S. South, where it really does appear that workers are treated utterly as utterly disposable and kind of injured and let go, um, in the broader structure of that industry, this could be seen as, you know, certainly a, a beneficent or even, dare I say, progressive thing. But um, the reason they put this in was it turns out that the disassembly line was moving so fast that one of the major cost centers of the company was worker compensation claims. That actually the um, that the line was so efficient and so worked out that they were just operating at the limits of the human body. And um, one of the major sites for investment um, turned out not to be in pigs, but in human musculoskeletal systems, right? If they wanted to increase their profit or at least minimize their costs, um, they had to somehow manage this rapid speed of work without injuring people. And this was the system they put in, just really kind of... Um, advanced ergonomics to try to manage worker breakdown of the body. And to get to where I was going, I've been you know, following to some extent the fallout of the failed unionization drive at Amazon, which in many ways, even before, um, especially in warehouses and delivery routes, sounded quite a bit like slaughterhouses. You know, we had all of these stories emerging of workers having to urinate in bottles, of having to urinate on the side of the road, um, because the pace of work was just so fast and unforgiving that even like the human bladder had become um, a problem of production. That um, you know, just like in the slaughterhouse, I think efficiency itself has become completely out of control. And, um, you know, in the wake of the failed unionization drive, I, I don't know the exact quote in front of me, but Jeff Bezos noted that one of the things that they will be doing is developing, as he put it, uh, sophisticated algorithms for ergonomics in order to minimize repetitive stress injuries, right? And I was just like, this is the American slaughterhouse writ large. Um, I don't have time probably to get into all of the details, but from the 1940s to the 1970s, there was a national union contracting and meatpacking. And actually meatpacking was like the 52nd most dangerous occupation in the United States, whereas today it's arguably one of the most dangerous. And that unionization worked to slow down the speed of work slow down the speed of the line. And when the, those unions were broken apart in the 1980s, what we got was a system whereby, you know, workers are having to wear diapers on the line and um, corporations are managing their bodies to make sure they break, don't break down in the face of um, strenuous labor. Now this raises an issue, which is a, one of the threads that runs through your book, and I should say that book is Porcopolis, American Animality, Standardized Life, and the Factory Farm. Its author is my guest, Alex Blanchett, professor of anthropology at Tufts University. And I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. One of the threads that runs through your book is the question of the, the consequences of this industry, which for well over a century has been refining its ability to eke ever more profits out of uh, what it produces and who produces it. 
And yet there are some limits to the bodies of, of pigs, the bodies of the workers, that while industrial pig has pushed and pushed to kind of expand those limits, but at a certain point, some of them presumably can't be completely overcome. What's the consequence of sort of running up against the limits of how much you can keep pushing and expanding your production and profitability? Yeah, thank you. I, I, I do think in some ways my um, ethnographic research um, was entirely structured around um, managers and workers just confronting limits every day. I, I, I just constantly heard managers say the phrase, there's no more low hanging fruit or that they're struggling to find quote unquote new money within pigs. They constantly felt that every effort they took to try to increase the scale, increase the speed of the slaughterhouse, increase the uniformity of pigs or increase the amount of pigs being delivered per litter um, were constantly leading to new forms of fallout. And in many ways, um, much of my research was really about how managers try to push pigs further and further and much of the fallout becomes surprising forms of having to remake human communities and kind of blast through um, accepted or just normal or unquestioned aspects of human living in order to keep it going. I earlier talked about how, you know, disease and scale of animal life had become large enough that, you know, managers had to start breaking up people, uh, workers in their home, or as I was just speaking about before, um, having to develop new ergonomic systems to try to manage workers like biophysical bodies. And one of the questions I had throughout this process was just constantly, where does this end? Um, it just seems like the 20th century and 21st century of meatpacking is just one of larger and larger and larger scales, more homogeneity of animals and environments, and more speed, um, seemingly without end. Um, but I will say, I don't know where this ends at this moment, because it does seem that the industry and um, government and universities that support them seem to be willing to break through or blow through um, quite a few limits. Um, you know, my book came out last May um, in the at a time when COVID-19 was really racking American meatpacking plants. Um, at the start of April, um, even people within the industry were sort of saying, you know, we have hit our Achilles heel. We have developed a system that is extremely labor intensive, that has 2000 people standing side by side in a refrigerated um, warehouse. And we are going to have to now revert back more to the scale intensity of the 1970s, where they didn't process every single piece of the animal in house. And it was a less, 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 much less concentrated value chain. But that didn't happen. Right. In late April, Donald Trump issued the Defense Production Act for meat, um, which many of us take to be at least an effort to try to insulate corporations from liability if they sicken or even kill their workers. And, you know, that was just disturbing for me. I, I shouldn't be surprised by this, but I think it's, it's important to remember that even though some companies, to some extent, have managed to get COVID relatively under control in meatpacking corporations. In April, it did not look like that would be possible, right? It was well possible, standing from April, that whether it was based on the speed of the work or the refrigeration, that you could not control and contain COVID within a packing house. But yet, they basically ordered workers back in. Um, they basically said that workers have to be sacrificed for cheap meat that we can't even shut down for three weeks. Um, and that to me is just an icon of the industry itself, how it's already working at the limits of the human body. But it also was profoundly disturbing and um, makes me think that unless um, this, these operations are actively resisted, regulated, and transformed, they will continue to just continue, uh, speed, try to speed up the process and increase the scale further and further in the years ahead. And indeed, in the midst of the pandemic, um, one of the things that we did see was a series of corporations try to apply for line speed waivers to actually increase their speed of production. And it really seems like they are not capable of just continue, they're not capable of doing anything but continuing down the same path that they have been going for well over 150 years now. 
Aren't there any openings in the kind of vulnerability that you've been laying out, though, that, you know, a paradigm that is based on ever-increasing speed, ever-increasing efficiency, ever-increasing exploitation, does that not set itself up for potentially intervention, collective intervention by, say, the workers involved in the process? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things I try to argue in the book is, you know, we, we should see this industry as really totalizing, right? It tries to control every single second of a pig's life. It tries to generate profits out of every microgram of pigs, but also precisely perhaps because it's so totalizing, right? For this to work out, it needs to make profit out of absolutely everything. It needs to work at such a speed. Precisely because of that totalizing aspect, it's also quite fragile. I mean, we saw that in 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 and amidst um, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. I think if the government hadn't stepped in, these operations might have imploded. Um, and similarly, you know, there's been a number of um, times over the last even 10 years where um, the industry itself, through the ways that it's pushing pigs so far and pushing workers so far, that it has appeared like it is on the verge of implosion. Um, for instance, in North Carolina, which has an enormous quantity of hogs, um, it's been continually beset by hurricanes um, that, that, that effectively um, end up spraying manure everywhere and severely polluting waterways. Um, and one of the things that I've been struck by in these moments, whenever this industry, whether it's from COVID or whether it's from um, manure or, or the emergence of a new pig disease, um, which, which is quite constant, um, I'm just always struck by how quickly um, people, including critics or ostensible critics, step in to try to save the system or try to help it out. Um, you know, one of the, the things that I always find striking is that I've met hardly anyone, including a lot of people within the industry, that thinks that this scale and this manner of raising and killing animals is a good thing. But yet, when push comes to shove, when this system breaks down, as it seemingly is constantly doing, um, there seems to be no shortage of people, including critics and in universities and so forth, that kind of are quick to set up, step up and say, ah, oh, we have the solution. Um, you know, if the problem is manure being stored in massive open air lagoons, we can um, put anaerobic digesters over them and try to mine them for biogas. And hopefully that will um, lead to less manure being sprayed everywhere. Um, that's to say we get in these instances, people that, you know, work in universities, ostensibly outside of the, the pork industry, in some senses are critics, um, kind of stepping in and saying, okay, okay, this industry is in peril. How can we how can we try to um, make it a little bit more sustainable? And in turn, that more sustainability always seems to be about finding another commodity or profit source within the pig. And um, so I'll just say that these operations are incredibly fragile. And one of the things I think we need to do as a society, as, as, as activists, as organizers, is create conditions that can actually allow for the implosion of these um, industries. Well, let me end by asking about that, both what would the, those conditions look like, and beyond that, um, what would liberation, would the liberation of labor mean if we think about animal agribusiness beyond capitalism? You know, if we were able to get to that place beyond the present, would we have to choose between humans and non-human animals in terms of thinking about the transformation of the labor of both? I think so. You know, I admittedly didn't get into this project initially with a concern, um, as odd as it sounds now, with a concern for um, the well-being of animals. You know, it was a, a, a vague um, issue that I cared about, but not really something that drove me. I was really concerned about um, the well-being and rights of workers. I, I approached this project as, as not being about pigs, but about assessing the conditions of, of workers. And to some extent, I think after working in these operations, that's a false distinction. I think that um, the condition of animals' lives severely affects workers' lives. And similarly, I think the capital's drive to exploit workers radically reshapes pigs. I think that these are interconnected. 
But at the same time, I have encountered many arguments um, that kind of look back to earlier epochs in um, meatpacking and say, look, if the unions hadn't been busted in the 1970s or 1980s, workers today would be making the contemporary equivalent of about $30 an hour. And, you know, seeing that refrain echoed and even, you know, saying it a number of times myself, it just started to sound kind of odd to me. Like, I'm not convinced you can construct a workers' um, utopia or, or even just an ideal working place um, out of something like a factory farm. Um, to put it gently, um, you know, it's still going to be full of excrement. Um, and so I do think that um, any move beyond capitalism has to square with the fact that one of the one significant dimension of capitalism is its drive to exploit and use absolutely everything. And I do think um, movements for a, a world after capitalism will need to take seriously um, the possibility of laboring less, of working less, and perhaps more specifically, um, working some things such as pigs, chickens, and cows a great deal less. Alex Blanchett, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Alex Blanchett is the author of Porcopolis, American Animality, Standardized Life, and the Factory Farm that's published by Duke University Press and at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. He is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Tufts University and co-editor of How Nature Works, Rethinking Labor on a Troubled Planet. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.